Listeners, three things come to mind right now. Number one, we use the internet so freely. Today's discussion is about the Erie Canal. As you listen to this conversation, you will see that the Erie Canal served very much like the internet does today. Number two, the treatment of the indigenous peoples, the American Indians, has been horrific. And in this episode, we will discuss that at some length. Number three, at the end of at the end of this episode, you will find an opportunity to support me by clicking on to a Patreon account. And finally, I'm having a good time. I hope you're enjoying the episodes as much as I'm enjoying producing them. Podcast, Patrick Miner's podcast. I have a great interest in the inland waterways because I have lived along the Mississippi River in several places, Minneapolis, Davenport, Iowa, St. Louis, Missouri, and Memphis, Tennessee. So my interest in the inland waterways is long and deep. Today, I'll explore the Erie Canal with the curator of a museum in Syracuse, New York. Derek, please introduce yourself and the museum. My name is Derek Pratt. I am here at the Erie Canal Museum. Canal Town, Syracuse preserves the only remaining Wheelock building in America. Well, you've introduced some technology there that is new to me. You said Wheelock? Wheelock. So that's spelled W-E-I-G-H. Essentially, we're a glorified toll booth, but we're a lot nicer than that. To to pay for the Erie Canal, the state obviously needed to collect tolls. This is a two-story Greek Revival building built in in 1850 that was built specifically to house a a gigantic scale that could weigh canal boats. Facility is no longer in use, though, is it? There's no more tolls being collected. No. uh, Tolls were abolished in 1883. And in fact, the Erie Canal no longer runs through Syracuse. They built a new and improved Erie Canal in the early 20th century. And the Erie Canal in Syracuse is now Erie Boulevard. The Erie Canal was 300 plus miles originally. Yes, 363 miles long, uh, built nearly 200 years ago, opened on October 26th. 1825. The fact that New York City could never have developed had the Erie Canal not been developed. The direct connection between the ocean and the Great Lakes was made possible, thank only because of the canal. The canal was a transformative waterway that shaped America in a number of different ways. And like you identified, New York City becomes the nation's leading port, leading city. Just to give your listeners some context, the canal built between 1817 and 1825, stretching 363 miles long, connects the Hudson River at Albany to Lake Erie at Buffalo. It was the first really efficient way. Before that, you would have had to take either natural waterways like the Mohawk River here in upstate New York, or mountain passes, uh, just the famous Cumberland Gap. That you can only take a wagon over and carry maybe one ton of goods maximum. But eventually, the Erie Canal is going to allow you to carry 250 back and forth. And it's not just goods, it's people and ideas moving west and east. The Erie Canal would open up the Great Lakes Basin. So you can easily travel now, when the canal opens in 1825, all the way to Minnesota by water. 
And also you can ship things back. You had been talking about other places on the Mississippi River. All those places thrive after the Erie Canal opens up because they're able to ship agricultural products. Cities like New York, which thrives, it's able to feed the people that live in the city and make up these industries. It's able to ship that surplus and then factories grow in those cities. They have a new market out in the West to sell their goods to. So it's kind of this perpetuating cycle of trade is, is formed by the Erie Canal. Let's lay out the geography a little bit, because I have always lived in the Midwest, and I think I've got this correct. From New York, there's immediate access to the Hudson River. New York is right on the Hudson. The Hudson is a flat river for about 100 miles, all the way up to Albany. You can easily, I mean, it's essentially a tidal estuary all the way up to Albany. You can take a boat right up there. Then, so geography plays a major role in the creation of the Erie Canal. You've got the Catskills in that lower bump on New York State, if you're envisioning New York. And then there's that upper, which is the Adirondacks. And cutting right between the two is the Mohawk River and the Mohawk River Valley, which is the only point in the Appalachian Mountains between Georgia and Maine that's under 500 feet in elevation. So that offered this perfect channel to dig a canal through alongside the Mohawk River. The Mohawk starts to turn north in the middle of the state, and then they kept on going all the way to Buffalo. Is that sort of intangible element of the canal, especially the ideas moving on it? The Erie Canal is going to really transform a lot of American thought. Also, transformations in American thought are going to play out along its banks. The first major movement that travels down the canal is what's known as the Second Great Awakening, uh, this religious revival movement. So these preachers move up and down the canal, preaching sort of a new form of Christianity, different from the traditional Calvinism of the colonial era, instead preaching a more personal, republican, democratic form of Christianity, where you, the individual, have personal agency in your salvation. And that is going to change the Canal Corridor. Uh, Western New York is going to be called the Burned Over District shortly after the canal opens because it is burned over with fires of religious passion. That's led by Charles Grandison Finney. He's going to be the major preacher. These people who've been sort of born again, they start taking his ideas and expanding them and saying, we have the moral obligation to make ourselves better. We also have the moral obligation to make society better. And Canal Corridor is going to become a hotbed for the abolition movement, the women's rights movements, the temperance movements, the Underground Railroad, and other religious groups will also form. Uh, there's famously the Oneida community out in Cheryl, New York. They form the utopian communitarian sect. We were all living perfection. They're a whole long story. Most people might recognize them. They will eventually shed their religious aspect and become a silverware company, Oneida Limited, which until the end of the 20th century was really the largest silverware manufacturer in America. But then also in Palmyra, Joseph Smith receives the Golden Tablets, and the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints starts out there, and Palmyra's right on the canal. Smith would have been hearing these kind of radical forms of Christianity moving around. Uh, he's going to work with Brigham Young, his first job, painting locks on the Erie Canal. He's going to move up from that, run Utah eventually, gets a start here on the canal. and They're able to spread their message, and the Book of Mormon goes up and down the canal, along with speakers and writers like Frederick Douglas, Susan B. Anthony, Jermaine Wesley Logan. 
Oh, there are plenty. Uh, so uh, the Oneida Community, there they have their own museum, the Oneida Community Mansion House. There are n- a number of sites in Palmyra, including Hill Camorra, where Joseph Smith received the tablets, have their own museum that's run by the Mormon Church. There is the Shakers out near Albany. Uh, I believe it is the Shaker Heritage Museum. They're big, became famous for manufacturing furniture and They also began the process of growing seeds. There were plenty of political ideals. A great book to read on this is the book uh, Heaven's Ditch, God, Gold, and Murder on the Erie Canal by Jack Kelly. It tells the story of of Mormonism being founded on the canal in this burned-over district, but also uh, the story of America's first third party is founded here on the canal. The anti-Masonic party uh, really gets its start in Rochester after the murder of William Morgan, who was allegedly going to reveal all the Mason secrets, and then this whole conspiracy theory arises about how the Masons are evil and going to destroy America. And then we get America's first third party, which is itself a fascinating story, but far more impactful politically are, I mentioned it already, the abolition movement and the women's rights movement both become major factors here on the canal. I already mentioned Frederick Douglass. He is going to, especially before sort of the Civil War, its offices where it prints are a block away from the Erie Canal. And I would say that's not by accident. He wants to get that newspaper onto these canal boats, and they'll travel all, all over the country. And there's a ton of evidence of abolitionism here. Scott Douglas, here in Syracuse, we had a gentleman by the name of Jermaine Wesley Logan, who was himself born enslaved in Tennessee before finding his freedom here in Syracuse. He gets educated, actually, at or the Oneida Institute in Whitesboro, which was the first ever school of higher learning uh, for integrated with integrated classes. And then he takes that, he becomes a minister all along the Canal Corridor, but most notably here in Syracuse, where he is going to help over a thousand people get to Canada on the Underground Railroad. And he'll also participate in Syracuse's most famous incident in the abolition movement and the resistance to slavery. Uh, on October 1st, 1851, right on the banks of the canal, there is what is known as the chair rescue. As part of the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, northern states were required to send freedom seekers back south if they were caught, formerly enslaved people. And Syracuse was very much against this law, as was the entire Canal Corridor. And on October 1st, 1851, as the Liberty Party was holding a convention here in Syracuse, a man by the name of William Jerry Henry was arrested under the Fugitive Slave Act, brought to Syracuse City Jail, and about a th- one to 2,000 abolitionists will gather and storm the jail, breaking Jerry out of prison, and he will eventually get to Canada. And this is a major moment nationally in the abolition movement. It shows the federal government that they can't enforce the Fugitive Slave Act, at least in New York State and around the Canal. A similar incident plays out in Boston a few months later. Again, shows that the Fugitive Slave Act isn't really going to work and that people are going to resist slavery. A major moment happens on New York State canals in the women's rights movement in 1848. That is when the Seneca Falls Convention is held. The first women's rights convention is held here in America on Seneca Falls, which is part of the Seneca and Cayuga Canal network. And and that's why those women, uh, led by Lucretia Mott and 
Elizabeth Cady Stanton are meeting there is because there's these this confluence of transportation routes, which they're all going to meet there at Seneca Falls. They uh, have the Declaration of Sentiments declaring all men and women are created equal. And Susan B. Anthony, for instance, lives in Rochester. Elizabeth Cady Stanton grew up along the Canal Corridor and a number of, of other uh, important women's rights advocates like Matilda Jocelyn Gage here in central New York uh, live in these Canal communities and spread their word by Canal. We often say that the Erie Canal was the information superhighway of its day. This was the internet of the time. It totally, we can't comprehend how transformative it was to have a message you were going to send take a week to get somewhere rather than a month. For the canal, it took approximately one month to go from Buffalo to New York City. And if you were shipping, usually the figure is if you were shipping a ton of grain, it took a month and it cost $100. Uh, after the canal is constructed, it takes a week and it costs $10. To ship that. You're moving things in a quarter of the time for a tenth of the price. Um, and that just totally transforms uh, all of upstate New York. Rochester, for instance, uh, the term boomtown is literally coined to describe Rochester, which becomes the flower city, uh, F-L-O-U-R. Uh, all this grain that is now able to easily be produced in the relatively fertile soil of New York goes to Rochester, which has these great waterfalls, the power mills, and they're able to just ship grain at astoundingly cheap prices for the time. The Erie Canal is the first public works project, uh, infrastructure project in the nation, and, and we still deal with a lot of the implications of that today. One of the big things that the Erie Canal innovates is the contracting system. Better than building this canal ourselves, we'll hire somebody to dig one to two miles of it. As a result of that, those contractors, they took their money, they dug their canal, and they weren't really reporting back to the state, keeping good records. So those contractors on the first canal usually were locals to that area. They just wanted to get the canal dug through their communities. And in some of the more settled areas, especially around like the Mohawk, and here in central New York, we have evidence of them mostly hiring other locals to do that. During the off-seasons for farming, you'd have a lot of these local people uh, would dig the canal. But in the harder spots to dig, like the famous Flight of Five Locks at Lockport, where they overcome what's called the Niagara Escarpment, that's the kind of cliff that Niagara Falls falls over. That's an incredibly difficult job that takes several years to build. You can't just have some guy who's like, I have a few months off from the farm. Want me to help you dig a canal? They can't do that at places like Lockport. And then there's the Montezuma Marshes, which are these disgusting swamps that they have to dig through that, again, no one's really living there. No one wants to do this job. So they start bringing in immigrant labor, especially the Irish. They become synonymous with the canal, and eventually with canal digging in general, they're going to work even more extensively on that enlargement of the canal as well. And they have a lot of interesting stories. They get a reputation as a, as a rough crowd, and part of that is based on how they were paid by those canal contractors, because actual cash was scarce on the frontier at the time. Uh, a lot of these workers were paid in room and board, and Part of kind of rations they were given uh, were copious amounts of whiskey. There's a great book, Common Labor by Peter Way, uh, talking about canal digging 
just in general, the workers in North America. And he estimated that the average canal worker was paid 12 and 20 ounces of whiskey per day. As you can imagine, there are lots of stories of fighting and whatnot on the canal and general just kind of drunken. Um, There's also a very famous story that as the canal neared completion in 1825 out near Buffalo, contractors would place a barrel of whiskey where they wanted canal workers to dig to for the day. And when they reached that area, they could have the barrel. That's that's one of the most colorful stories, though actual hard evidence of that is less easy to come by. The indigenous people remains of primary concern. Most of the Erie Canal is built on the land, uh, the traditional homeland of uh, Haudenosaunee people. A lot of people know them as the the Iroquois, though they call themselves the Haudenosaunee, which means people of the longhouse. And they were a confederacy of originally five, eventually six, Seneca, Cayuga, Onondaga, Oneida, and Mohawk, eventually joined by the Tuscarora in the 1700s. They lived in the area that would become the Canal Corridor for centuries, uh, had their own unique civilization, um, America. Some of the founding fathers went and visited with the Haudenosaunee. Ben Franklin famously brought back some ideas about governance and democracy from this confederacy. They had their own democracy, though they didn't bring all the elements. elements. For instance, the Haudenosaunee have a very matriarchal society, which some of the future suffragists on the uh, Erie Canal, specifically Matilda Jocelyn Gage, would hearken back to that in their arguments for women's rights and women's ability to govern and vote. The Haudenosaunee lived here for, for centuries during the Revolutionary War. The majority of the Haudenosaunee decide to remain neutral. The Oneida Nation really join the American cause uh, and send I know several Oneidas will go to Valley Forge, but other individual members of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, notably Joseph Brandt, who is a Mohawk, will side with the British. And in the later stages of the war, the New York frontier is a major source of conflict. There's fights between loyalists and and patriots, and the Haudenosaunee often get wrapped up in this. And so George Washington, recognizing that, sends General John Sullivan into sort of the Finger Lakes region in western New York. And his orders are essentially to commit genocide, tells Sullivan to burn all the crops and villages and make sure that no one can survive the upcoming winter. And Sullivan succeeds very well at his task. That winter remembered still today by the Haudenosaunee people as one of the worst winters in their history. And thousands die of of starvation and exposure uh, as a result of this. So that serves to uh, depopulate a lot of this region of New York, though after the war, treaties are going to be signed, notably the treaties of Fort Stanwix. Uh, The Oneidas, because they sided with America, will get a very generous reservation The other nations of the Haudenosaunee will also be given reservations, though as the preceding decades go on, those treaty obligations will be repeatedly ignored by New York State. New York State is going to enter into a lot of illegal treaties because only the federal government has the authority to treat with indigenous nations. New York ignores that. They make these land deals. There's also all of these land companies 
Famously, there's the Holland Land Company in Western New York. They're going to settle Anglo-European settlers in the area. That that Oneida Reservation I mentioned uh, before, it is going to, and I was born, they had about 20 acres were left of that entire reservation. And that's going to happen again. And there's a the Buffalo Creek Seneca Reservation. That is where Buffalo is today. That's going to be taken from the Seneca eventually. They'll, these land companies and their agents will often play different factions within different Haudenosaunee nations against each other, get them to sell land illegally to them. Then they build the Erie Canal which we've had speakers from the Onondaga Nation here who said built a dam right through their traditional homelands. The Erie Canal is essentially a wall made of water that cut right through these traditional Haudenosaunee homelands. And and then these settlers come and are going to completely disrupt the Haudenosaunee way of life, which focused on a specific form of agriculture as well as hunting. White settlers come in, and by the 1850s, Onondaga County is pretty much deforested. White people come in, take a lot of Haudenosaunee land, grow their own crops uh, on them. I don't suppose there's any real way to rectify all of that terrible story. And the story about the reference to genocide is an ugly story, and we cannot overlook the ugly stories. And there's one in particular. There's one in particular that surprises many people, and that is that I think it was in the late 1750s or early 60s when George Washington was in the service of the British Army, distributed blankets to the Indians. Winter was coming; these blankets were distributed. When the British came back in the spring, there were no Indians left. The indigenous people had all died of smallpox. All of the blankets were infected with smallpox. And that's a horrible thing that we do to recognize Sullivan's raid. It has been whitewashed at points, and that's actually connected, that whitewashing, to the Erie Canal as well. Some of your listeners may be familiar with it as the Sullivan-Clinton campaign or expedition. And that's because another one of the generals in the Sullivan campaign was James Clinton, who his son was DeWitt Clinton, who is generally referred to as the father of the Erie Canal, one of the most popular and well-known, well-respected politicians in New York history. For the 150th anniversary of the revolution, New York State was looking to commemorate its role in the revolution. And by 1780, there wasn't exciting stuff going on in New York. So when they get to that point, the state historian decided they should celebrate the Sullivan expedition. People at the time, though, recognized this was not a good event. So he did some rebranding of it, as, as we would probably say today. Throughout the Finger Lakes, there are all these monuments that were built sites where they fought quote-unquote battles, were really massacres, or they burned a village here. Those monuments exist. And the historian at the time also said how we can get people to maybe like the Sullivan Expedition more. Let's connect it to the guy who built the Erie Canal, DeWitt Clinton. So they call it the Sullivan-Clinton campaign. Try to connect it to DeWitt Clinton through his father, which is an interesting way to take it. And, and those monuments are still existent all over. Derek, if any of the listeners were to get in their car and head to the Erie Canal, 
would they be equally satisfied by going to Buffalo? Or would it be better to go to Syracuse or Albany? Is there a, a nexus point that would tell the story very well? Here in Syracuse at the Erie Canal Museum, we try our best to give a kind of encyclopedic view of the canal, we like to say. Here at the Waylock Building, we attempt to give the most broad story of the canal, an incredibly unique building. But there are a number of other great canal sites all throughout New York. Uh, in Buffalo, for instance, there's the Buffalo Maritime Center, which they are actually building a Erie Canal packet boat. As we speak, it will hopefully be ready for the bicentennial in 2025. In Lockport, I talked about them. They're one of the most incredible engineering feats of the canal. They have the Erie Canal Discovery Center, where you can learn about the canal and see they are rebuilding the historic flight of five locks. And you can see the modern canal locks, which are also incredibly impressive. It's a flight of two locks here in the Erie Canal Museum. But there is also, right outside the city, uh, there's the Camillus Erie Canal Park, which has the only restored aqueduct on the canal. You can take a boat ride over it. Mango Landing is the only rebuilt dry dock on the canal. There's a lot of other great areas as well here on the canal. Check out the Erie Canalway National Heritage Corridor. They are the National Park Service branch that they oversee canal area, and they have a great map, for instance, that shows you all the great historic sites, other notable things to see along the Erie Canal. I have probably since about seventh grade had an interest in the Erie Canal. I'm so pleased that we've had this opportunity to discuss it, and I'm sure that many of the listeners will find this very informative. Derek, I thank you very much. Yes, I've enjoyed talking with you. Thanks for having me. Please take one moment and look at the last line, show notes, and you will find a link to my Patreon account. Ah.